Welcome to Cross Section, a show discussing all things design and construction. Your hosts, Alex Regnery, project manager and self-proclaimed recovering architect, and myself, Nathaniel St. Jean, registered architect and builder, tackle the vast spectrum of our fields. Whether you're a seasoned pro, student, or just generally curious about the industry, there's something for everyone. And don't worry, there's plenty of nonsense and humor to lighten the mood. So let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Another episode of the Cross-Section Podcast with Alex and myself. Hello, hello. This week we have on a special guest continuing on our professional series when we just like to chat with people around the industry. Today we've invited on Jonathan Webb. Jonathan, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys today? It's a pleasure to be here. We're getting by. Despite the the gray skies, not too bad. Yeah, despite the gray skies for sure. So I guess we'll just kick it off by saying I'll flip it right out to you, Jonathan, and introducing yourself and uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Jonathan Webb, and I'm KI's Director of Workplace Strategy. Um, My primary role here at KI is to provide uh, thought leadership uh, and client support uh, projects that we are working on across the country. Uh, I get to uh, operate within and run a bunch of cross-functional teams here at KI and uh, a lot of different client-centric projects that we uh, are you know, constantly working on. And uh, but, but thought leadership and, and content and creation is near and dear to my heart and, and something that I'm very passionate about doing. I've been doing this for little bit over 10 years, but I've been at KI for almost 25 years. So um, I'm a Wisconsin kid, kind of grew up near Milwaukee and have remained in Wisconsin most of my life. Uh, Live uh, KI is based in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Go Pack Go. And uh, so I know it hurts some folks, but you know what? (laughs) Six and one. So, (laughs) you know, not a whole lot I can say about it. But anyway, yeah, it, it's it's great. I'm, I'm blessed. We, I live in a great community, uh, have some great uh, coworkers and teammates, and get to have a lot of fun for a living. Well, I'm, although a native of the, the Granite State, I probably told you before, Jonathan, when we first met, I uh, lived most of my life not too far south of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, South of, south of that other Midwestern <laughs> city, Chicago, the Bears. The Bears. Not that, that I was a, not that I was a big fo- It's always a sore subject, but I have I had a meeting earlier today with a and uh, group out of Chicago, and I always have to reluctantly <laughs> from Green Bay, and I usually get a host of booze. So um, I, <laughs> I, I, I bet it happened. How, how was Neo, Neocon this year, by the way? You know, it was okay. Um, you know, I would say that the overall attendance was, I don't know, maybe like 35% of normal. You know, it mm-hmm. was, so the way I look at it was like Monday felt like a Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday felt like a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my career, I left Tuesday night to come home. And usually I'm, being one of the people in charge of the show, I'm generally there for the duration. So, um, 
there were pluses and minuses. You know, obviously we, we love it when there are bigger crowds um, and there are more clients there. One of the pluses of Neocon for us this year was the people that came into the KI showroom spent, I would say, considerable more time in our space. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll get people that walk through and they'll be like, can I get a tour? I got 20 minutes. It's like, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll cruise through this as quickly as we can and make it, you know, worth your while. Um, but boy, this time, you know, I, I bet my average engagement with an A and D or end user client was almost an hour. Um, oh, wow. people were not in any big of a hurry. I think people enjoyed conversating face to face. I think people enjoyed themselves. Uh, you know, even over the lunch hour, uh, you know, when it usually goes a little dark for an hour and a half, it was interesting. You know, every soft seating and table throughout our space was just full of people sitting down enjoying themselves. So it was, it was good from that standpoint, right? It, it Neocon allowed us the opportunity to have, uh, more quality conversations maybe than in past years. So that said, I'm personally looking forward to 35,000 people coming back next June. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For and, and just to kind of back up a second too, for listeners out there who don't know, what, what is this conference typically or generally for? Yeah. So Neocon is the contract office furniture's primary trade show. It's located in Chicago at the Merchandise Mart. It's typically the second week of June, uh, which it will be, by the way, in 2022 again. This year, with uh, the pandemic and everything going on, they had they had pushed it out from June to, uh, to early October. So it was a fall event. Um, so that was unique, certainly, and that uh, the weather was certainly different. Usually, the second week of June in Chicago, it's you know 95 degrees and muggy, so uh, <laughs> the weather was a bit of a, re- of a respite, which is nice. So, but you know, it, it is where it, it's definitely a destination event. Um, you know, I, I think trade shows are are difficult for any industry these days. I think for, for the contract furniture industry. You know, the, you have to fig, you have to address the cost behind them as an organization and determine if it's really worth uh, doing them. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. but I would say year in year out, Neocon has proven to be a worthwhile investment for KI and other contract furniture uh, manufacturers. And you know, again, aside from the fact that the attendance was down a lot in the fall, I I think most people welcomed having a normal event. And uh, so I, I think the feature of the of Neocon is, is in pretty good hands, even with the number of uh, uh, contract office furniture manufacturers leaving the merchandise mart and going to some other areas. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a good event. Yeah. Great event in the merch mart. And it's a great place. Um, what were people clientele generally looking for at this year's, um, lesser populated neocon that might be different than what they are looking for in the past? Um, so I, I would suggest that this year was 
And Nikon's a product show. It's a new product show. It's where designers and, and clients come in from around the country and they get the opportunity to kick the tires. Uh, I actually think that's one of the reasons why our clients stayed in our space much longer uh, than they normally did is, is I, you know, we've had this civilization over the last almost two years now where people have been working from home and, and they haven't had, you know, even the ability to do anything but surf for a product on the web. So I, mm-hmm. I think the experience of sitting in a chair and playing with a table and, the, you know, a mechanism here or there, I think that that was a big deal. So the, I would suggest that the theme, you know, just from a topic standpoint at Neocon this year, especially for us, was uh, talking to our clients about hybrid work environment. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, from my standpoint as, as the thought leadership uh, guru at KI, I'm, I'm always trying to gain an understanding of where our clients are taking their workplace um, to, to a man or to a person. You know, everyone seems to be under the understanding that the physical office space is still important. Uh, it still has its place. But I think the perception of how people get work done and um, the types of activities that are done within the physical workplace is changing because of hybrid, because we've become accustomed to working from home because we all became video conference experts in a matter of like three minutes last March. And, um, you know, because of those reasons and probably a few others, you know, we talk a lot about what it means to plan an office environment to make the experience within the office much more purposeful. You know, what are we doing to, uh, make sure that those uh, collaborative meetings are, are are truly collaborative. You know, what are we doing with spaces to enhance ideation and engagement um, throughout the day? Um, and that idea of, of enhancing collaboration and engagement is a theme that seemed to, to kind of come up again and again and again. And, and it, it came through in the, in the new products that you saw from KI and other manufacturers, quite frankly, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, before the pandemic, 90% of our clients were one-to-one, which means for every employee that they hired, um, they had one workstation. You know, and I'm, I'm talking about our biggest clients. I'm talking about clients that hired tens of thousands of people. They hired 40,000 people in a year. There's 40,000 workstations or desks. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as this major pivot continues... You know, we're, we're having these really wonderful discussions with with clients and with A and D planners about man, you know what what does it mean for real estate? What does it mean for how we use and plan real estate in the future? And it's been a pretty fascinating conversation. Yeah, I'm actually excited yeah. to unpack this because this is actually the first, I guess, topic. Uh, that we haven't really gone down. This is an interesting avenue to kind of talk about, and I think. A, a few questions to kind of get us started here is part of that conversation. It seems that the, there's a specific clientele that are, that are specifically using the products through KI. It sounds like offices, institutions, like large organizations. Um, do you think within those different organizations, cause they're all probably in different industry sectors that their way of working is shifting as a whole, or do you think certain industries are shifting in a different way or any kind of thought on that? 
So I think I think some industries are historically more progressive than others. Mm. So, um, you know, I think there were industries like the tech industry that probably had work from home programs um, more so than the financial services industry or the insurance industry even. Um, you know, it really just depends on the culture of the organization. So it, it's, it's definitely not holistic to an industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's every industry is, every company within the industry is, is very different. There's, I don't think there's very little homogeneity from, from industry to industry. So, you know, it is kind of a one-off for everybody. But, you know, I almost look at it now from the standpoint of, I feel like up until, 2019 or 2020, I should say, you know, we'd have these conversations about, you know, working from home, working outside the office and the cultural acceptance of doing that um, just wasn't there for a high percentage of companies that, that we know and worked with. And, and by the way, these aren't just, you know, companies, organizations, these, these could be colleges, right? These could be hospitals. Yeah. Like the sure. government entities. Um, and then, you know, so then you, you kind of read the tea leaves and, you know, I would suggest to you that there's probably certain younger generations that are probably been going, you know, hallelujah. Like the old folks are finally getting it. <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> finally starting to understand that there are different, you know, we can work anywhere. We can be collaborative. Uh, you know, we can still work at home. We can still have a, a work-life balance. We can still, um, you know, determine which hours of the day that we want to work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, I still think major adoption is, is going to be an issue because I, I think, um, when it comes right down to it, the bottom line is what drives decisions in most organizations. And, um, you know, if you feel like that your company is not doing its best, in terms of bottom line revenue um, and the CEO attributes that to lack of engagement, lack of collaboration, lack of being in the office, um, then, you know, then chances are your, your company is going to come back to the office sooner than later. Right. I mean, Facebook's yeah. one of the largest manufacturers out there or one of the largest companies out there. And Zuckerberg has been pretty much on record saying like, you know, they've, They've not been as accountable and they've not been as uh, formidable through the pandemic because they've lost the ability to, to work together. And that's why he wants everyone back in the office when, whenever you know, they deem it safe to, be, to do so. So it's not just small companies. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting. And, and I think you know, that's what speaks to um, whether it's different industries um, offices, universities, whatever, or even different companies within that same industry is the different cultures and in, in the culture, you know, what, what culture sort of works best, um, for, for, for anyone. Cause what might work for one may not work for another. Um, I do. Th- and I, and I agree with everything you're saying. I think, I think the differences although those differences in cultures exist and continue to exist and they're always evolving, of course. Right. But where, where the similarities are, are some of these 
themes of flexibility, right? It's just having that flexibility, that engagement question or challenge that that's the, that's, that's the challenge, I suppose, with establishing sort of your culture and, and so what works. Say again. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Yeah. So we call flexibility the new F word. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Because yeah. It's, it, it's hard for people to accept. It's hard for organizations to accept, but um, you know, that's a mantra that we've been following the last several months is, um, you know, if you want to succeed long-term, yes, I get that you want people back in the office or you want people back in the office a certain days a week or, you know, whatever your point of view on it is. But if you don't have flexibility in your thinking about what the future of your office is going to look like, um, there are, it's pretty evident. There are a lot of other places (laughs) for good employees to go to. Uh, So if you're trying to retain your best employees, you know, as an organization, you best listen to them. Yeah. Uh, probably why you hear about so many people changing jobs these days in the past year, you know, just up where, where you wouldn't have thought about doing that. Um, you know, a year prior to that, um, a lot of people shifting, you know, what I'm interested in hearing about from you, Jonathan is, where did you start in the industry and how did you get to where you are now as, as a, as a workplace director? Yeah, it's, um, I would say I'm probably the road path less traveled. Um, so I'm full disclosure. I'm not an architect, so, uh, or an interior designer. Um, you know, I, I got a business degree and uh, came to work at KI when I was in my mid twenties, um, started in kind of an inside sales and project coordinator role and, and then moved into large accounts. And, uh, at that point in time, uh, for us at KI, our largest account was Microsoft, uh, out in Seattle. And we were mm-hmm. outfitting their Redmond campus, which, which, was growing like hotcakes back in the mid late nineties uh, with all of their furniture. So I had the opportunity to work on that account and I kind of gained a really quick understanding as a kid from the Midwest, like this is how a tech company operates. Right. And, you know, Microsoft was, and they're kind of the original tech company, I think that most people recognize. And so I really got to understand how big tech companies operated and how they worked and, you know, what their people did and, you know, that it's a service type of industry. So that was pretty interesting. Um, I've actually had nine different titles over 25 years here at KI. So, you know, for me, it was very important to get to know um, all facets of this company. We're a pretty flat organization at KI, uh, but there's a lot of room for movement and improvement. If, if you have the, uh, if you have the, the, you know, the desire to do it. So, um, you know, I, I moved from there into uh, installation management uh, for the federal government, the sales into the federal government, up into product marketing and management, which allowed me to get into product design, uh, which is probably one of my most favorite activities to do here at KI is be involved with the development of new products, new product mm-hmm. development. Is a, it, it's a fascinating process for us. It's, it's a really, mm-hmm. really, process. 
Yeah. From there, I, I took and got into um, into really SBU management, managing the growth of the corporate sector um, as a strategic business unit here at KI, and took that role and kind of reworked it into um, into being the thought leadership guy because it was a it was a whole for us as an organization. So we didn't have a lot of, um, I would say introspective points of view on the industry. We didn't have a lot of, uh, points of view on, on what we did and why we did it. We didn't communicate it. And I took that as an opportunity to, to kind of reframe what my, one of my roles would be with the company. And, uh, so I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, I was a communications major in college. So, you know, it was something that I was always pretty good at. And uh, so then I, I started going down that path and started um, looking for ideas to create unique points of view. And, um, and, and that's where we kind of started to build out that whole uh, part of the what I do now within the corporate market. And that's to be... <clears throat> KI's workplace strategy resource for, for our, our team nationwide. So it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Which is pretty fascinating to me because, um, when I was getting out of school in the first couple years in the, in the industry as an architect early to mid nineties yeah. and, um, in, in worked on a lot of, um, academic projects, universities, um, private schools, as well as, as corporate projects. And when I started, it, you know, in working on the FF and E parts of projects, aspects of projects, we, you, you, you were involved with selecting furniture. Yeah. And then it was probably over the next decade or so that it wasn't just about picking out furniture. Right. right. I suppose, so I suppose it, it, it would be natural for the, 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 the big players in that furniture world, KIs and Herman Millers and steel cases, I suppose it'd be natural for that industry to start thinking more about how people work rather than just simply, you know, is this the best chair? But speak to that a little bit, how that sort of evolved in the, in the, in the, in that industry. So to me and what I do in terms of establishing thought leadership, I'm, I'm very passionate about enabling our reps to create their own professional brand. Um, you know, the contract office furniture industry is, over $13 billion in size. Um, and there are literally hundreds of manufacturers out there and we're all vying for, you know, our fair share of the pie. What has happened, I would say, especially over the last 10 years is, uh, the office furniture industry has become largely commoditized. Uh, it's also become very global. So those two things go hand in hand. Uh, especially as some of these global European Asian companies move their way into the United States, establish distribution, so on and so forth. So to me, the 
thing that I can do that has the most value to our reps is to supply them thought leadership and stories that they can create and having a conversation with a client and enabling them to be memorable. And if, you know, if, if you're working on a large project at, at, at SNU and you're building a building and you're evaluating, you know, what kind of furniture you're going to put in this building. If you don't know furniture, I mean, or same thing if you go to Neocon, by the way, I mean, you walk through Neocon, you walk through two or three floors, you don't know what you saw two floors ago. I mean, the stuff is, <laughs> yeah. you know, unless you're a real furniture guy or, you know, a guru, you know, it, you know, office furniture is, is more and more difficult to differentiate every single mm-hmm. day. It's just so much. So I think it's important for us to be able to inform our clients about what's going on within the industry that they work in outside of other industries, um, even across different silos, you know, like how does, how does the design at a college university help to inform what design should look like in a corporate office, for example? Hmm. Um, what can we learn from the design of a, a, of a school union or a library and how can we inform and, and use some of those learnings to help our corporate clients that work for a financial services firm to, to do a better job of designing something so that they can better attract and retain talent. All of those things thematically are great. And what I try to do then is provide not only a KI point of view, but KI owned data based on research that I do uh, over the years and then you know, put together white papers and presentations. And then I, I use that information to train our sales team across the country and get them to be able to talk about furniture more in terms of environment and more in terms of what is the impact of what they're selling on the organization, the organization's culture, the organization's brand, their ability to attract and retain talent, um, even, even to, you know, supporting their bottom and top line goals. If I can do that as a workplace strategy lead a KI, if I can help to, to kind of give that point of view and if we can get our, our KI reps across the country to understand that and be able to talk about that, to me, that's a win because I think that's a differentiator. You know, we're not just pulling a, a chair and a table out of the back of the truck and saying, here, try this. Because, you know, it's, it's got it's got a poly this and a metal this and a pad on this or something. You know, there, there's a reason rationale behind the design. Yeah. Well, like you said, and how many more floors of those tables do you want to keep looking at? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because that's that, that that and um, that's that's interesting. Yeah, because it's not necessarily about picking out that table or picking out that chair. It's, it's the conversation way before that that. I've, I've, I find fascinating talking about how people work and, and, um, the environment, the culture. Um, and then it sort of seems like the, the physical components, those tools and furniture pieces, they sort of then kind of fall into place. And they should, I mean, there, there should be a rationale behind why a designer and end user picks a certain desk chair table lounge piece 
you know, part of it's the way they like, you know, the, they like the way it looks. Some of it is the fabric, some of it's the finish, but you know, mm-hmm. there has to be, there has to be a, I think a, a higher level understanding of what the goals are for the client. And to me, for, you know, a salesperson out there in our industry, if they can really understand what the goals are of the end user, and then they can match their goals with a solution, um, you know, they're going to be in a much, much stronger position with the client. Yeah. And I wonder for listeners too, when they think of a furniture company, they're probably thinking like very big picture, like they produce furniture and sell it. But from what I'm gathering here, right, it's, it's much more than that. So what is that typical process look like for your organization in terms of going out and, and getting work or selling goods? Yeah. I mean, you know, workplace discovery for us, you know, we're, we're looking, um, you know, to relationships with end users that we have, we're, we're looking to the A and D community, general contractors, developers, and so on and so forth. And, um, so that process in terms of discovery is very early. Uh, what I think our organization strives to do that's a little bit different is uh, we don't have a, a cookie cutter approach to providing solutions for our clients. Uh, as a matter of fact, over 20% of everything that KI makes on a daily basis are products that have been modified in some way, shape, or form to accommodate the needs of our client. And, um, so, you know, that's something that it means that we're personalizing solutions. It means that we are creating solutions that aren't necessarily in a catalog. Um, they may have started from a standard product. Again, we get a lot of clients. It's funny to me that in an industry that a lot of us call commodity, there are still a ton of solutions and a, and a ton of different applications where a client goes, I want an environment that does this and I can't find it and I can't seem to get it designed and nobody seems to understand what I want. And I think that our ability, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I think our ability to listen to what the client needs and then to make recommendations and say, I hear what you're saying. Here is a starting point of what a standard solution would be. However, if we modified it to do this, to look like this, to solve this problem, is this closer to what you're thinking of? And a lot of you know, times the answer, of course, is yes. And that, that's what enables us to say, okay, you know what? For not really that much more money at all, you know, we're going to be able to provide you this exact solution or what you want. So our ability to modify and then co-create solutions with our clients is for us a huge value proposition at KI. And I think that's one of the things that allows us to, um, to be different, quite frankly, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then at the same time, so you're talking about like over time, there are studies and, and data that's kind of collected so you can kind of uh, map trends or, or uses. How does something like that happen? How does that occur? Quite frankly, a lot of it's pretty organic. Um, you know, from my, from my standpoint, um, I have conversations with, with individuals like yourselves. Uh, I certainly read a lot. 
Um, I just try to pay attention to what's happening in the industry. And then we try to make solid arguments or trends that are coming as a result of the issues. So, you know, when we continually hear, um, you know, health and wellness, um, health and mental well-being is, is an issue for a lot of the clients we work on. And then we start to examine, okay, if that's an issue, what are the trends that are coming as a result of the issue? What are we starting to see? And then how does that impact real estate? You know, so when a company's looking at uh, health and wellness programs, health and well-being programs as, as a, an organizational issue, then we'll say, okay, you know, what are things that they're trying to address? Is it on the insurance side? Does it have to do with the physical workplace? Are they investing in healthier food options and upgrading a cafeteria? Are they putting in a gym or a yoga studio? Um, you know, what are the things that they're enabling their employees to do feel better about themselves? You know, is it a hybrid working program, right? So um, we, 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 we pay attention to what our clients are telling us are their issues. We, then we turn around and we pay attention to the corresponding trends. And those tend to lead us in the direction of a point of view that we feel might be unique for KI. So, um, and then we'll turn that point of view into a hypothesis statement and then uh, start to outline uh, research based on the hypothesis, right? And it's, you know, people that are listening to this that are maybe out of college, because it sounds like what I did in undergrad school. It, it kind of is. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a reason you study this stuff in school, guys. You know, it's actually <laughs> the real world. Um, so then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll seek to prove out some of the, some of the ideas that come about. Uh, naturally just through meaningful discussions amongst our team internally here and our clients. So it allows us to, to provide, I think, unique points of view. Mm. Uh, if only we are able to convince the students that we do have that um, at any given time that what they're learning now will be applicable in their futures. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were in the same boat. We we're students. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Uh, um. Let's see. How about uh, currently um, just with challenges that everybody is feeling and in, in experiencing in one way or another um, in industry um, with supply chains and material availability and all that kind of stuff? How, what, what kind of pressures are you experiencing? Uh, so we... Man alive, it, it's it's crazy. Um, we're we're doing a better job. You know, the, the supply chain thing is is impacting everybody in our industry, um, and, and 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 every industry, right, for that matter. So, uh, I think what um, one of the things that we're so you know we're we're realizing additional lead times. Um, we are, we're getting killed on container charges. So like, just to give you an example, bring a container of, of stuff in from overseas, you know, whatever the widgets are, the container in a, a year ago would run us, I think it was like three to four grand. The same container today is running us $29,000. Oh, so wow. it's, and, and not only is it costing us four X, um, it's taking three times as long to get here mm-hmm. because of probably seen the images of the 
the ships off of Long oh, yeah. Beach and yeah. and yeah, this, I don't want, you know, there are all sorts of reasons, right? There's yeah. lack of labor, lack of globally. Everything. So yeah, globally. It, it's crazy. So do we feel like that's going to be long-term? Yeah, we think it's going, that's going to continue through next year. So the way mm-hmm. that we have to address that is to be more informed about the types of things that we need to, to make the products that we sell. It's things like rolled steel, aluminum, um, you know, a lot of raw materials, right? Plastics, laminates, mm-hmm. press board. Um, you know, some things are U.S. based and, and some things are from overseas. Regardless, it's, you know, we still have timeline issues. So we're starting the process right now of really looking into what our pre-buys are going to look like for next year. So, you know, we're a very metric-driven organization at KI. I mean, we we measure everything. It's our finance meetings you know, we'll make the average person's head explode with all the, <laughs> with all the statistics that we go through. But the benefit of doing that for a company like us, where we have a really wide and deep product portfolio is that we can say with, with pretty good certainty, what a year is going to look like next year based right. on the demand that's coming in from the field and, and our clients. And um, so, you know, we'll start to pre-buy, you know, we'll start the buying process for uh, a buying season. Um, for example, like, our college and university and K through 12 markets, right? Our buying season is typically in the spring and they want to install in the summer. Well, why do they want to do that? Because there's no school going on in the summer, right? So that's when a lot of K through 12 and college and university. So we'll start the buying process now Mm. instead of waiting till January and February. Mm -hmm. Essentially what we're just doing is we're we're trying to get our place in line earlier. I mean, that's really what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So we can plan for that. There's obviously a little bit of risk doing that because we are using data to make some assumptions about what, uh, what we're going to look like next year. Um, some things cost more, you know, uh, commodities, steel, aluminum, everything, you know, the, the, the rolling averages of those costs ebb and flow. So, um, it's crazy. And of course, you know, the, the cost of fuel, uh, that makes everything go is mm-hmm. also that as well. So, you know, you're seeing you're seeing a ton of surcharges right now based on fuel um, by almost every major manufacturer. Uh, some of those surcharges are are at least ten percent, uh, and they're supposed to be temporary, but nobody really knows how long they're going to be. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. seeing you know anywhere between a nine and 10, 11, 12 percent surcharge that's being added to, to every quote wow. right now going out the door. Well, you know, if you work for an organization and you have a hundred thousand dollars. Um, of spending power and you know the quote I gave you was $100,000 and then tomorrow it's $110,000 um, just just because I charge you $110,000 doesn't mean that you magically have another $10,000 right so that means there's a good chance that you're going to buy less for me or you're going to go somewhere else potentially um, you know where we have to value engineer and make sure you're getting everything that you need so it's it's a problem across the board again for, for mm-hmm. every manufacturer. But yeah, I mean, for the contract furniture industry, it is a huge, huge challenge and undertaking and it's, it's having uh, consequences for organizations uh, and our overall profitability. We're, we're a very profitable company at KI. I'm proud of that. Um, we're also an employee owned company. So as an owner of, 
of the company, my, you know, 2,000 of my fellow owners, uh, we look at this stuff on a daily basis and we figure out what we can do to provide for the best needs of our clients and also provide for, for the best of KI. And uh, mm-hmm. but that's one of the great things about working for an ESOP, right, is, is we all have skin in the game and right. we're all looking for the best thing for the company. Yeah, that's 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 pretty interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that. That's a great fact there. Um, um, that uh, employee owned company. Um, you know, I read a crazy uh, factor, if it is a fact, the other day about this whole supply chain thing. Oh boy! And how? Yeah, and how ninety percent of the U.S. alone, ninety percent of that supply chain is relied on containers yeah. that we don't make in this country. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. But to, into that note, does it make you KI or anybody think that mm, do we need to be making some of this stuff, you know, more locally? And I don't mean to get into political conversation, but more maybe it's more of a sustainable. Yeah. So much like work from home practices have increased because of the pandemic and and companies have made systemic changes to the way they allow employees to work. I think from a manufacturing standpoint, a trend that you may see is a larger drive to sourcing onshore versus Mm -hmm. offshore. So now it's not like steel rule companies, you know, they don't just pop up on the corner, like, (laughs) like a grocery store or a convenience store, but there are organizations, you know, the, the reason that companies went to China or Taiwan or Vietnam is because the quality was good and it was less expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I mean, why else would you do that right. as a business? Yep. So if I can get same or better quality, same price, reduce my lead time and take out a container cost, why would I not mm-hmm. be more US centric in everything I buy? So, there is, there is going to be, and and this is again, this is a hypothesis of mine. I don't have any data or proof, but mm-hmm. I certainly read a lot. I read the economic reports. I think there could be a nationalized sense of, of a sense of urgency toward nationalization when it comes to to purchasing and, and supporting U.S. made hmm. uh, businesses and, hmm. and commodities that sort of thing. So, and. You know, that, that's not all bad, right? I mean, um, there was a point in time we didn't buy anything overseas. <laughs> so yeah. um, our, right. our economy is very global. Um, you know, maybe this changes the, the import-export ratio uh, back in favor of the U.S. versus East Asia. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, that's a pretty mm-hmm. big ask. But I think it's a fascinating time. And um, I did get a chance to talk to, to KI's uh, supply chain lead. He's a the guy's a genius. The guy should do Ted talks. Um, he's great. Um, but yeah, we'll get him started. next. Yeah, maybe Gary would be great. Um, but yeah, he shared with us some information last week about the strategies that, 
that they're undertaking and, and it, it is interesting and that's like, you know, newer suppliers that, that think differently and do things differently and figure out different ways to get stuff from point A to point B mm-hmm. and how efficiently, um, you know, those are the types of companies I think that uh, manufacturers like KR are going to have interest in working with because they, they, they maybe they think outside of the box a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. Right. That's how you, that's how you got where you're at anyway, as a, as a company, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I, we've always, KI has always been a very lean company. You know, we're a flat organization. Um, and then since we went to, since, since we went to ESOP, you know, a handful of years ago, um, I think everybody in this company has such a vested interest in, in seeing everybody do well. Right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, if one does well, everyone does well mentality. And, uh, it's what makes ESOPs just such a, a neat business model, quite frankly, can't say mm-hmm. enough about it. Um, so I know we're coming close up to time here. So I'm curious, hopefully we can get a couple of these questions in or, or some thoughts that I have mulling over my head. Um, we talked about how the pandemic has kind of impacted the, the way in which we're working, whether it's hybrid, flexible, adaptable, yeah. whatever. For your company though, like what does that mean in terms of the products and of the, uh, the goods? Like, is there a trend or a change in, in the types of things that companies are now asking for, or is it kind of just the same old or the typical units that are typically um, installed? I think that the products that we are designing are inherently being designed to be more flexible, to be more multi-use. So um, a table is not just a table for a cafeteria. It has to be used for three or four different things in a cafeteria. Yeah. Uh, a chair is not just a stacked chair that's, that's used as a guest chair in an office. It has to be used in a variety of applications. So, um, so, you know, the other thing I think that, that we're going to start to see more are, are collections of furniture as well. So instead of just, a single chair, a single desk. I think you're going to start to see a more familiar, a familial type approach oh. to designing of products because, you know, if you go back, you know, go back to the nineties or the two thousands, you go in a typical office environment and you go, okay, here's the main area of the office. These are the cubicles, right? And everyone sits in a cubicle. There's the wing over there. Those have all the conference rooms. There's a wing over there that has a training room. And then this wing is where you go to the cafeteria and then the bathrooms are back over here. And, and that's it. Mm-hmm. in a hybrid work environment. You cannot compartmentalize exactly. the work like you did back in the nineties and two thousands. We have to be flexible in our approach. And, and when we say hybrid, we also have to make sure that employees have empowerment to change the layout as they deem. Right given the activity that they're working on. So, you know, they might come in some days and go, you know what? I, I just got out of my house. I'm coming to the office every day this week. I'm just going to focus. I need to go heads down, box myself in a little bit. Boom. <clears throat> hey, two days later, I got pulled onto a project team. I got four other people. We're all going to work together. I need to take the same kit of parts and I need to make sure that the furniture is flexible enough that we can collaborate and engage and do the stuff that we need to do to accommodate our project that's why I think you're going to see more collection oriented families of furniture being born. 
um, in the contract furniture industry over the next year or few. Because I think as we go to hybrid, as we get away from the one-on-one planning model I talked about earlier, um, organizations are going to say, you know what, we're going to take less space because we're going to allow hybrid and people are going to work from home. So I'm going to reduce my corporate real estate footprint. And I'm going to make sure that the space I have is extremely purposeful. It's extremely detailed into and designed into exactly what we need to do to enhance our productivity. And that's the bottom line. I think that's the, that's the number one thing that you're going to see in our industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The product and the function of that product has to align with the same thinking of the use of space as not being dedicated and right. Yeah. Flexibility. Absolutely. No, yeah, this is great. I think, um, so I think we are kind of coming up right up to the edge of time here. I want to, uh, kind of throw it back to you. If you have any kind of closing, uh, thoughts or comments and kind of maybe where, where you guys are heading. Yeah, no, I'm appreciative of the conversation. Uh, you know, what we're, where we're heading as an organization again is, is to, uh, further, uh, evaluate the future of workplace. And it's something that we're always very passionate about here at KI. Uh, I'd suggest that you can, you can keep up with my work and, and the thought leadership platforms that we put out at KI.com, very similar, uh, simple URL, uh, or any of the blogs that we send out at blog.ki.com. So uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn as well, certainly. But uh, I'm very appreciative of your time and, and all of your questions. I greatly enjoy having these dialogues and um, and, and, you know, good luck to you guys and, and everything you guys are doing up in New Hampshire for sure. Uh, great to have you, Jonathan. And, uh, thanks for coming on. Great conversation. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Listeners, don't forget to support the show over at tectonicanow.com slash podcast. Until next time. Cheers.